0: mm <laughs> From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and we get to amplify and celebrate the contributions of women in healthcare and health IT. Uh, I talk often about how healthcare is a very complicated place, a 30,000 piece puzzle, if you will, and we all hold a piece of it. So, today on the show, we are welcoming a new guest, Amy. Amy, can you please take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. So,
1: my name is Amy Connor, and um, I've been in the health space, healthcare space now for over 20 years. Um, I started my career. Right after graduate school, um, I have a degree in a master's degree of public, from, in public health from Boston University, and I went into um, consulting right from um, from my master's program. And there, I had I really learned to market access. You know, it's great for companies to come up with amazing products, but if you can't get them covered by health plans um, or other at-risk entities, you don't have a market for your product. And so, I got to take everything I learned in graduate school and kind of implement that and help these companies come up with their strategies for gaining coverage, coding, and payment. Um, and once I left that organization, I had the opportunity to work for DiGene. Um, it was a, lab, a laboratory company um, that made the HPV test. And I was there right when the FDA cleared it for screening women age 30 and over in combination with the Pap test. And so you know, through a combination of advocacy, um, and you know, just diligence working with health plans, we were able to gain universal coverage in about three years. Yeah, um, I remember
0: when that what year was that?
1: It was between 2003 and 2007. I totally
0: remember that. I remember going to the doctor and they're like, you're getting this test now. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, it was really, it's really amazing how You know, for 50 years, we've been screening women for cervical cancer with a pap test, which is only about 50% accurate. It's basically the flip of a coin. And it took, you know, that's why you had to go back every year because cervical cancer is typically slow growing. And if you were screened three out of the five years, you would typically catch somebody who was developing precancerous and cancerous lesions on their cervix. Um, So when we introduced the, the, uh, the HPV test for screening, it was amazing how many clinicians were really uncomfortable going there. Uh-huh. Um, and despite explaining that we're waiting for patients to develop cancer before identifying it, when we could, if we know they don't have the virus, they can't get the cancer. And right. so it was really eye-opening to see what it took for clinicians to change their behavior. Um, nobody wants to be first and nobody wants to be last.
0: So how did that, like, if you were had your eye on that and it, like, a, under a microscope, like, how did it change over time? like? What did it take for people to adopt it, you know, like what was the what was the yeah. thing that made it happen? It
1: mm-hmm. took individual physicians, you know, getting comfortable with having that conversation with their patients. Uh-huh. Um, how do you explain to a 50-year-old woman that she has HPV, she's been married for 30 years, she has three kids, you know, she's in a monogamous relationship, but she has HPV. Um, Everyone gets HPV. It's not a dirty word, right? isn't it?
0: Funny. I think that the language around it has totally changed, where people right. are like less like, they're like, oh yeah, everyone's got it. No everyone got it. Yeah. You know, but it used
1: to be super scary. It used to be super scary, yeah. and no, nobody wanted to do that. Um, and so it really just took, you know, the first couple of patients and, and having those conversations and realizing that it was a much better diagnostic tool than what they were using, um, and they were beginning to really help women um, avoid cervical cancer. So. It was also in combination with the the vaccine that came out at the same time. So we really amplified, um, you know, the HPV message in this country. Gotcha. Um, And health plans followed along because it was in ACOG guidelines. So they had, you know, they were following their society guidelines. Um, But I would say that was less of an impact than just getting comfortable with with the test and and with the conversation. And, you know, that's what I'm really excited about, you know, in in Holly's um, initiative is that we're now going to build that into their EHR. We're now going to provide incentives for them. So they don't have to, you know, they can just order it and they can get the experience. We're making it so easy for them to have access to that decision making as opposed to having to go and and kind of within themselves make that
0: decision to change their practice. Can we talk about that for a second? Because we just jumped from like 2004 to (laughs) to 2022. 2022. So So you're still working in
1: women's health, correct? Yes, I did. I did have um, a little bit of a break for um, for several years. I I worked in the orthopedic space, which was actually um, very, very fun. Um, You know, working with um, device reps, working with um, hospitals, working with health systems, working with payers, Um, in a different space and I think what that provided me with was just a lot of confidence, like I know what I'm doing and I can go in and do it and I can hold my own no matter who's in the room but when the opportunity to go where I am now, you know, arose, I jumped on it. Because getting back into women's health is truly where I feel like I belong and where my passion is.
0: Okay, so now let's get into that. So <laughs> what is it that you're working on now? And like, what is so exciting about the, the impacts that you have the opportunity to, to make?
1: Right, so when we fast forward from 2003 to 2022, yep. and, you know, nearly 20 years later, we now have, you know, integrated health records, we have electronic health records, we have so much more data um, and we're able to mine that data into actionable you know, progress. And so to my point earlier, being able to bake these clinical quality measures into an electronic health record so when the woman comes in, the doctor is prompted um, to, to order this test or they are prompted to do the screening, they're prompted to take action um, to help identify these women who are at risk of having a spontaneous preterm birth, so that's what that finally sort of technology's <laughs> caught up with, helping to push um, physician change because it's really difficult for physicians to change their behavior. Right. Uh, you know, they want to provide care and they need to be compensated for providing that care, um, but there's so many. Um, you know hurdles to that right now. You know payers, and, and they want to pay them less. You know, and yeah. we want to do, mo- we want them to do more, but payers want to pay them less. You know, the way that the the way that the payment systems are set up right now if a physician is concerned about a patient and identifies them for potentially being at risk of a complication, they they code that complication. That does allow them to get reimbursed more. But if the woman never gets the complication, they don't get that extra reimbursement. So they've actually been providing quality care to prevent a complication. And then they actually don't get paid for that when the woman actually and you know, that's is a, in better health.
0: And so that's what we talk about a lot with like value-based care and like the purpose of it, right? right. Like, a, a, what is it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure mm-hmm. or something exactly. along those yeah. lines? And it's like we don't want to wait until things get extra complicated. We want to catch them beforehand, because it ends up saving the system tons of well, not one because it's the right thing to do. It's you know better outcomes and it costs a lot less. But it's a conversation that comes up, has come up several times for me, which is how do you um, how do you measure a negative, right? Like how do you if Superman saves the world. You know, if we all didn't implode, you can't measure that, right? right, right. You're just like, it would just feel like a normal day. Right. You're not going to get reimbursed, so to say, if right. you're if you're a doctor who's like, I just prevented this right. person's world from imploding. Right. There's no reimbursement There's for a reimbursement that. There's no reimbursement for me. Yeah. So like finding a way to do that, it sounds like that's what you guys are working on. Absolutely. So So the,
1: the Dream Big initiative is creating those clinical quality measures, which provide the language and provides the avenue for providers to provide high quality care and share in the savings that result from that high quality care so we're not only improving maternal and fetal outcomes we're also rewarding the physicians that are doing the hard work to improve those outcomes yeah. and without you know without that you know we're never going to reduce these disparities we're never going to um, get rid of this crisis that we have around, you know, prematurity, and that's what's exciting to me. So, as Holly builds language and she builds the measures, I'm the one going out to the health plans and to these systems and saying, "You need to, this. Is why this is how we can solve this problem, and this is how we can all work together to improve the quality of care while also saving you, you know, millions of dollars in the process." Um, All health plans recognize that they have a problem with prematurity. They're spending a lot of money to design programs that will get women to their, to their appointments, that will get them to their ultrasounds, that will get their blood work done. Um, but again, we're putting the burden on the provider to, to ensure that that happens and giving them very minimal incentives to do so. So by tying in these clinical quality measures, you know, we have an objective way to say to these OVGYNs and other women's health providers, you matter, your work matters, and we want you to share in, the, in, that, in that
0: reward. I love that so much, you have no idea.
1: (laughs) We can't keep burdening physicians to do more without giving them a seat at the table. You know, it's not fair for a health plan to identify a problem, save all the money by covering a test, And then have physicians, you know, stressed out and reducing care because they don't have a seat at the table. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and it sounds like it's going to solve not just the problem for the patient, but also for providers as well, to a degree which is great. You know, and again, it,
1: by by having these measures integrated into their EHR, they're able to take some of that stress away from I don't want to be the first, I don't want to be the last. But you know what? If I can provide better care and achieve, you know, some financial, you know, recognition for the work that I'm providing, I'm doing meaningful work and I'm getting paid for it, mm-hmm. which is what we all want, mm-hmm. right? To do meaningful work and be compensated um, they're more willing to adopt. We saw that with HPV testing. Once they realized that they were actually improving outcomes without a lot of extra, with no minimal work, um, you know, because you, you can do an HPV test at the same time you do a pap test, right. so it's one sample, um, they realized that they should change, and they can change, and they do change.
0: That's great. Well, okay, so it's you were saying that you started working in healthcare consulting right after college, correct? Graduate school. Graduate school. Okay, so what did you study? Like, what was your journey? So, <laughs> I grew up, you know, much like Holly, I
1: grew up in rural New Hampshire. Okay. Um, not Arkansas, but New Hampshire. <laughs> and I realized that I wanted to to get out of New Hampshire. I, I love the state. I love being there, but it wasn't where I wanted to be long term. And so, I made the decision um, during the college application process to just go for it. And I had to, you know, my guidance counselor didn't want me to apply. I went to Boston University okay. as an undergrad as well. He was my mother's guidance counselor. You know, didn't think it was what? worth my parents, you know, money to send me to an out-of-state school um, when all I was going to do, you know, going to college was, you know, find a husband and get married. Um, and at that point I realized that staying in New Hampshire was just not an option for me. So I went to college. Um, I had a great time. I studied psychology. I've always been so interested in human behavior and what makes us who we are and how we think. And I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. <laughs> maybe I could become a doctor, but I also liked the law, so maybe go to law school. And maybe I'd become a social worker because I wanted to help people. And I realized, um, I worked for the advisory board company in Washington, D.C. And, oh, that's a great company. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun, and it, it kind of helped me realize I wanted to be on the policy side of the equation. And so I found you know public health programs, and it was the perfect blend of healthcare but also being able to impact it at a larger, broader scale. Um, so I went back to BU, um, got my degree, and then actually at a career night um, somebody from the consulting firm came and explained what she did and that's when she started talking about you know reimbursement, market access, and helping companies achieve their goals. and I had to find a way to pay back my student loans, Uh (laughs) so going to DC and working in, in, you know, public advocacy wasn't going to to get me where I needed to be. Being a social worker, so I went to the, you know, I went to the, to sort of the dark side of, you know, of the world, um, and I haven't looked back. But I feel like I've been able to help a lot more people than maybe I would have been at a small nonprofit. Maybe one day I can go back to those roots, um, but for now I'm really, really happy to be, to be in this, in this space at this time.
0: That's really exciting. So, what do you think, um, people that might be in a similar situation, either just starting their career or not sure like where they can, you know, make a difference? Like, where would you lead them? What advice would you give them? I would tell
1: them to, you know, to trust their instincts and follow their gut. And, and, you know, what do you truly love to do? You know, I realized when I was in college and graduate school that I really enjoy helping people, and that. I'm an extrovert. I was I wasn't always growing up, but now I am, and I, I just love to meet new people, love to talk to new people. Um, but I also knew that I loved women's health, you know, and you know this was in the you know the mid to late 90s. There was a lot going on, much like now, and trying to reduce access to to women's health, and it was really important to me to be on the right side of that equation. Um, and then you know when I when I ended up at DiGene, I was actually really happy, you know, it was mm-hmm. kind of a controversial subject and. You know, but I, I loved it so much because I saw firsthand how, how impactful early screening is. So if you're new in your career, what do you like to do? Do you like to research? Do you like to read? Do you like to learn? Do you like to talk to people? Uh, and then figure out where your interests are and then try to align that with a career path.
0: Yeah. I can uh, relate. I w- and to, I started out thinking I was going to be a psych major and then I was like, yeah, no, I don't think I could listen to people's problems all day. <laughs> And I switched over to um, English because I love reading and I love inter- right. I love the thought process of like understanding, you know, the arc of a story yeah. and whatnot. And so I remember getting a lot of feedback of like, what are you going to do with an English yeah. major? Right. Like, how do you get a career in that? It's not just like an obvious path forward, but I find that it's a- applicable to everything. everything. Yeah. And it's like, the, and I imagine a lot of people in the beginning of their career, even if you're major doesn't like drop you into a specific career path, it's definitely something that you can maneuver and figure it out. Absolutely, the skills
1: you learn in college, especially with a liberal liberal arts degree, is the ability to think critically, right? To really analyze a problem, think it through, find supporting evidence, and try to think of you know, try to think through it from all sides of, of the issue. So whether you're a psychology major, or an English major, you're still writing, you're still thinking, you're mm-hmm. still analyzing, and that, those are the skills that you can take to, um, to your employer. Yeah. You know, it just and this is something I've said in probably every job interview I've ever had is, I have the foundation of, skill, of skills to do this job, I might need to learn the content and I might need to learn the context, but my experience in this space provides me with the foundation of skills. I need to, to do this. Yeah. And so if you're just starting out, your college degree is that foundation of skills. It demonstrates that you're trainable, that you're, you know, excited that you like to learn, that you like to think. Um, and and just use it that way that's why when you're in college major in something that you love major in your passion because you'll learn so much more and you'll figure out how to spin it into whatever career obviously if you want to go into medicine you need to take your you need to take science classes if you want to go into the you know um, other you know if you want to be an engineer you take engineering classes but at the same time if you're following and doing what you love
0: you'll find your path so you touched on something earlier that I'm hopeful that you will be open to talking about, yeah. and it's sort of about the idea that women's health is controversial. Yeah. and And uh, you guys are working in the pregnancy company, and mm-hmm. in so many, it's really unfortunate how uh, in many places around the country, just talking about access, education, resources, right. reproductive yeah. health, etc., it's actually... Um, oh. a, a, it's a bomb, you yeah, know. It's in like, the
1: vast majority of states, uh, it's it's very scary. Yeah. Anything related to sex education is not does not have to be accurate. Right. No. No, no, no. It's, I, it's, and you have to take the emotionality out of this, right? Yeah. We are human beings, and we need to know how our bodies work. We need to know when it's okay, you know, personally to do something. Your personal level might be different from the person next to you, but we need to give... Young adults, the education to make those decisions by taking out all of the extra baggage, right? And that's what I've done, you know, with my own kids. Is we have very open and honest conversation, and as a result, they tell me more than sometimes I want to know. But <laughs> I would rather they feel comfortable coming to me with those issues, and we, it's just so normalized. It happens at the dinner table. Yeah. It's not a taboo subject, you know, men's health or women's health. You know, I have three boys and one girl, and I want my boys to be, you know, advocates for women's health. I want them to understand a woman's body. I want them to know that it's not a taboo subject and that they're just as responsible as as a woman is for, you know, for knowing that information.
0: Good for you as i think it's just as important when like we think of like oh we want to raise our daughters to be right. you know powerful and you know empowered etc but i think it's just as important to raise good men
1: you right. know you know like, to, to you know to to understand you know I, you know the political climate in this country has been you know pretty contentious over the last several years and you know i have a 17 year old son who's kind of exploring his political views and yeah, I live in Massachusetts, which is a very liberal state, and you know, part of being seventeen is questioning authority sure. and coming up with your own ideas and you know he'll say to me, oh, I think I like this idea. Well, have you really thought that through and you know, think about what that would do to you know, to your daughter, to your future spouse, to your girlfriend. Would you want her not to have that access simply because you like his stance on something else? Right. You know, and there's, you can see the light bulb go off, and you start to, he starts to realize that, you know, dis, you know, your vote matters, and your decisions matter, and you need to think th- through these issues before you, before you make a decision. So, it's been fun to watch him kind of navigate that process, yeah. Um, because he's coming to the realization that he needs to be informed on women's health issues because they really do matter,
0: and they will affect him as and well. And they will affect him yeah. down the line. They will affect absolutely. him absolutely.
1: And you know, he doesn't have to go out and be a, you know, a champion of women's health. I would love it if he did. But he needs to be aware that these issues are important and they matter, and they could impact somebody close huh? to him. You know, trying to explain that if you reduce access to abortion, you don't protect the, the mother. You know, the mother's life in that process. You could have an ectopic pregnancy. I was and just going to mention
0: that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there's no option. It's a non-viable pregnancy. It's a
1: non-viable pregnancy, and you know, you're willing to sacrifice a woman's life, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a. You know, yourself, even. Yourself, even, yeah. because you can't get timely access to health care. Yeah. You know, and these are, most people won't have that conversation with their kids, you know. And I think I was, you know, I was pregnant with him when I worked at Gene, so, um, you know, and I was in the middle of, you know, a very controversial subject at the time. And it's, it's been, I think that really shaped how I've approached that and approached parenting. I'm just being open and honest. and. You know, I'll, I'll have that conversation even as I watch people cringe and be uncomfortable because it's important to me.
0: Yeah. Well, I have, have just really enjoyed your, our yeah, conversation. Me too. And uh, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and also know the good work that you're doing, yeah. not just professionally, but also at home. Yeah. And uh, if people want to find or follow you sure. or get in touch, how would you recommend um, that they do um,
1: so? You know, I'm LinkedIn. I unfortunately don't have a Spotify <laughs> <laughs> link yet. <laughs> like sorry, but, You can find me on LinkedIn at Amy Connor. and it's C-O-N-N-E-R. Okay. Um,
0: And, yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with you. Okay, perfect. We will make sure that our listeners are aware. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. You can reach us at hitlikeagirlpod.com or follow us on social, again, at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc.,